0: So today being kind of the tail end of a what felt like a multiple month long tunnel of ordination preparation this uh there was very little um we didn't talk about what we were going to talk about I don't have a list of any sort but I have some thoughts and we'll see how if it if it goes well to go organically So um is it What, what date did you get ordained?
1: Um, it was, uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, of uh, 1997.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and then your transmission was over the same time of year.
1: Uh, it was in December of 2012. So just around, you know, so like around this time of year.
0: So we're at 25 years for pre ordination and 10 years for, for for transmission. Mm -hmm. So we had this idea to kind of, you know, do a. Yeah, reflection day on, you know, that much time being robes and that much time teaching. Um, So why don't we start at the beginning? And to the extent that you're interested in, like, you know, I guess the the intersection point is kind of like your life as it was right before you got interested in this stuff and started Mm -hmm. doing it. Mm -hmm. And as far back as you want to go back from there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> can I go multiple light, lifetimes back? No. If you can. <laughs> no, I so I actually I was remembering that when I was a little girl um, I was raised Catholic and um, you know how some people play house. And so I played church. And I was the priest. (laughs) And I think I kind of knew, like, well, that's not really going to be possible in real life, but it was okay to play. Um, But I think, like, why did I do that, you know, is kind of is a question. And um, for me, I think that represented that I could see um, that there was something more to life than meets the eye. And I appreciated how some of the rituals in the Catholic Church um were pointing to that, and I wanted to participate in that in some way um and then um I can see how that same thread continues like as I think about the ordination ceremony last night, and like there's there's this sense of like this is you know in a way it's like this is ordinary, this is you know. People kind of going on a path and, um, you know, putting on the priest robes. But then there's all this language from the tradition that says, you know, flowers are falling from the sky and these <laughs> different things are happening because there's something really big happening here that's beyond our understanding. So um, so that's a little bit of yeah.
0: How did that, how did that look in the, you know, from the, but uh, I, I used to play church too, we, well, ne- Necco wafers, uh, are the, uh, <laughs> are the, the, the communion <laughs> toy of choice, <laughs> um, uh, how, so what would, what did that trajectory look like, what were all the different versions yeah, of that right. from playing church yes. to, you know, setting foot in a zendo? Um,
1: well, so there's many many, many threads um, when I was in high school. I got involved in the um, charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church, which is more you know kind of the, the Pentecostal thread speaking in tongues, and you know a lot of praise, a lot of you know ecstatic um, really devotional kind of mm-hmm. practice um, so I was in that for a while and then. Somewhere in um, college, you know, after college, I just didn't like uh, Catholic in particular and Christianity in general just wasn't kind of doing it for me. So I sort of, you know, stopped practicing formally, um, stopped going to church. Um, And
2: then sometime uh, in my... uh,
1: Late twenties, I want to say, because I think it was right around the time, like I that I, I was planning to get married. So then there was there was that kind of big thing, and I sort of was feeling like there's something else here. I was remembering somehow and reconnecting with the. Um, it's not just going through the motions of life. There's something more here that I want to be in touch with, and um, so I started going to uh, various. Uh, Christian retreat centers and convents, and you know, places where I could go and just, you know, just be there for a day. I wasn't so interested. I did some like organized retreats, but mostly I was just interested in going and hanging out with people who were more contemplative. And what I really felt like as I did more and more of that, I was doing it probably like, you know, I don't want to say once a month like I do now, but it was pretty regularly. and I realized that um, in terms of prayer and connection, what I was really interested in is a prayer of listening. So I was interested in how I could just—I would say how I described it then—was to just sit and be in God's presence and not have my own agenda and all this other stuff. There. And um, it was really hard. As we all know when we sit down to meditate you know, like all the different things that come up and so it's like how can I learn to just be? And I called up a retreat center and said, do you teach meditation so that I can learn this? And they said, well, no, if you want to learn meditation, you should go to the Minnesota Zen Center. And I was really surprised that a Catholic um, retreat center was referring me to a Buddhist center. Um, so, so then I, I did, and I took an um, intro class that um, Biocrin Judith Regier was teaching. So Biocrin later became a uh, guiding teacher here. Um, that was before Clouds and Water existed, so at Minnesota Zen Center. And then as it happened, Biakrin, uh couldn't be there the first night of this six-week class because mm. one of her parents had died. And so Joan Snyder O'Neill filled in, who then later became my teacher, but I didn't see her for a little time after that. Um, but anyway, as I learned, as I took that class, and my husband Shokai and I took that class together, um, and as I learned more about Buddhism, so my original idea wasn't to become a Buddhist, it was just to learn meditation so I could be in God's presence. Um, but as I learned more about Buddhism and and the practice, I really felt like, oh, strangely, this is my home practice. Strangely, this is um, this is my true, like my true parents are Buddhists, you know, that lineage, um, and that I felt like my uh, Catholic upbringing was was kind of a really good foster parent, <laughs> but, but now I found my 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 true home and I just felt more. Like, um, within the Catholic Church and the Christian tradition, I felt like I had to keep reinterpreting. Like, they say this, and that's not exactly what I believe. I believe it this way. And more, at least in the beginning, with my Buddhist practice, I felt like that wasn't so much there. It was just like, oh, here's the practice, and I don't have to be reinterpreting it. And then, of course, as I learned more about Buddhism, and, you know, there's some roots that aren't so wholesome, and, you know, there's... (laughs) patriarchy is there too um even though women can be ordained and but that's okay you know now i'm looking at it with more open eyes but i think that that still that thread of the deep listening the listening um and being in the presence of majesty is continues to be something that is really um exciting for me
0: i was going to ask you about that Do, do you feel like the the deeper you got into Buddhism and the more you heard Buddhist ideas, was there a transition from God to Majesty? And do you feel like you kind of got they took God away from you?
1: No, <laughs> God is still there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just um, even even when I was still um, going to mass regularly and practicing as a Catholic, I still felt. And there are threads in the Catholic tradition as well that say. You know don't pin god down to some certain idea mm-hmm. um even like imagining god as a person is not quite right i mean so that's that's sort of understood in in some basic theology you know around uh within the catholic and christian faith um so it's more like i don't talk about god so much because many people in the sangha have a, like a negative experience with um Growing up in a in a Christian particularly religion where it was kind of used as a punishment sort of thing, and so I don't talk about it a lot, but inside I feel like yeah it's god is is just um it's opened up it's, um it's that boundless openness what
0: um as you as you kept what feedback were you getting from your own interaction with the practice that made it feel like a thing to to keep coming back to um and that could be either from like the zazen point of view or the social point of view mm. or you know, what were you yeah receiving
1: mm. well i've in some ways i didn't know exactly what i was receiving it couldn't be defined and i remember um uh I would often be asked to go and talk to, like, to high school groups and, you know, uh, in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone asked me a question, something like, um, "Well, how have you changed since mm-hmm. you started Buddhist practice?" And I didn't know. And so I went home and I asked my husband, "How have I changed?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> we want to switch to the lapel mic and get in and lose it. I'm loud. And maybe if Selson so just had the lapel mic, I don't have any. I don't even have an indoor voice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're or is it just the Zoom? That's
0: We're getting right? a little feedback.
2: Yeah. Oh. So oh from the it.
1: two, the interaction yeah. between You're the two of us. Yeah.
2: What this is turned way up. So okay.
1: Okay. So, Should I turn it toward me? Yeah. Just turn toward. You could just do
0: it that way. Okay. Let's try that. Okay. Maybe you can remove yourself. Sure, come back, don't yeah, right, you right. Okay, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Oh. Yeah, the little tin, <laughs> little tin um. beings left the walls.
1: So, that is my husband's show, right? I don't, I don't know, I'm on camera, but <laughs> people in the room. Um, so anyway, when I asked him, well, I went home, came home and said, well, how have I changed? And he thought for a while, and then he said, you're funnier. <laughs> 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 That's pretty good. <laughs> so, and I felt like, yeah, um, it's like I don't take myself so seriously. So there's a lightness, and mm-hmm. that I couldn't really recognize it. Um, I had to ask someone else, mm-hmm. but I think that's one thing that I, I get is just the lightness and delight and happiness and being alive. Yeah.
0: So when, what, was there ever a point, was there a priest aspiration moment?
1: Um, we're going to do lapel mic over are still now. getting the feedback. Oh, okay. All right, sure. We'll go. Well, I remember that um, my ordination teacher, um, like sort of early after after I had received Ja'Kai and Clouds and Water was just, um,
2: I don't even even think it
1: was like incorporated yet, so it was just kind of a group. um, And I remember he said something like, well, he was applying for a grant to do teacher training. And I said, I'd be interested in that because I just felt like um, it was, touching me in a kind of way that I could feel was helpful, although I didn't really even know exactly how, but, um, and that it was something that I wanted to share. So that was like there kind of from the very beginning. Um, And then uh, he didn't get that grant to do teacher training. And then um, a little bit later, um, uh, I guess a couple other people had had approached him about being ordained. And I didn't even really so much think about that, but then when I heard that that was happening, I'm like, "Oh, I like that too. So it was like, me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I sort of like, I didn't really know what I was getting into. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember that, uh, I remember this Sunday morning after my ordination, because I was, you know, and um, so uh, standing up like like Raku did this morning and you know in my robes with the shaved head <laughs> so I'm kind of like what am I doing
2: here <laughs> how
1: did this happen and then and then kind of realizing oh my gosh every time I sit zazen I'm gonna have to put on all these robes. <laughs> I was kind of bummed. we don't have that rule now so <laughs> but you know for formal things yes so um so then it's like wow I'm really Like, okay, uh, there's this thing that I said, I said yes a bunch of times and I didn't really know what I was saying yes to, Um, but, but it felt, it felt important to just keep going in that way.
0: What did you discover you said yes to?
1: So it's a vow to be a certain way or to aspire to be a certain way, which is to live my life um, uh, like wide open. At at one point, I I said my realization was being a priest is, you know, to to like truly embody it is to um, like imagine that everything I'm doing, people could see. And um, so, it's sort of like secretly eating the chocolate. You know? it's like, okay, what if people could see me? Now, not as a way to like be like, all tangled up about it, but more as a way to say, how, you know, how do I want to be in the world? And if I can be in the world in that way, then when people actually do see me, it can be helpful. Um, because I'm grounding in myself, like, how I want to be in the world, which is to be uh, of service to others um, in uh, in unfolding the Dharma, as best I understand it.
0: And it's interesting to think, like, I fe- a couple of the result things that you mentioned, I mean, results, mm-hmm. but, like, the impact that it had on you, like, taking yourself less seriously and feeling... Um, I suppose. What was it just now? Kind of like um, that. You can have the the feeling that everything that you are is kind of public. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that can have like quite the opposite impact on folks than, mm-hmm. than it had on you. I feel. I I I think for myself, and I've I've seen others like getting the more they get involved in practice, especially like around the, the priest transition, like. Take themselves more seriously, you know, um, and that the uh, the idea of kind of the social role of being clergy kind of splits your life in two. And then there's more that secret, or something like that, or there's more that's unacceptable. You know, do you think there's I don't know. Is there? A, do you have any phrasing around what the pivot is to make that liberative rather than you know relegating parts of yourself
1: well if i feel like being a priest is about the show like what i'm showing um then then i think it's easy to get you know to have that split happen um so it's tricky i'm trying to think like what what is the what's the difference um I guess it's, you know, it's mostly just coming back to the internal sense, like I'm actually doing this for me and for all beings because we're not separate. So when it's that way, it's kind of like this, using this gesture of like, okay, it's deep going down um, to the root. Um, and then it's like, it's not a problem. But on the other hand, there's still times when it's helpful for me to be away. So most of you know that I do spend um, a couple days a month, more or less, not every month, but probably eight, nine times a year um, in a little hermitage cabin by myself. And just completely by myself with all beings, but actually by myself, <laughs> where I don't have to answer to anyone and don't have my to-do list with me and, um, uh, and that I can just kind of do whatever. So, but there's still, it's like whatever I'm doing there, if someone were to see me, there's no problem. So, I, I don't know if that helps at all. <laughs> you know? but i i do i hear what you're saying and it's it is really a danger you know people getting feeling like the the import of this role it's huge and so then people who are in the role of priest can feel like oh i have to present this certain thing because otherwise you know people will stray from the dharma or won't you know won't be inspired or or you know i whatever, it won't be helpful, so I need to do this. And there's a sense of a, you know, like a facade that's Mm -hmm. out there. Um, So that's really dangerous. And so I think, you know, I'm not to, I can't say that that's never happened for me, but when it does, it feels bad. Mm -hmm. So then I don't want to practice like that.
0: Um, Speaking of feeling bad, (laughs)
1: Um, I'm curious
0: I I feel like it would be relevant I don't know relevant, complete be thorough to talk about the the clouds apocalypse Um, I don't want to like lead too much Um, but uh, both of us have teachers that Road Nation teachers that did the, the main thing they're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, to this day, you know, we had this... Um, yesterday morning we had the ceremony where there's parts of it that you dedicate to your ordination Nation teacher. And I was thinking, my own Nation teacher, and just feeling like this kind of... Um, you know, when you first get into this, you're just kind of sold the lore of the lineage. And um, what happens when... It's uh, that promise is broken, or that pedigree is—you know—the ingredients aren't what they said they were going to be, or something like that. And how that was, and the transition through that end—you know—having that not be the end of the story, and that you continued and started working with another teacher and became a teacher yourself.
1: Um, I think the apocalypse is too strong to was <laughs> was some kind of explosion. And so the thing that, that Koji is mentioning, um, the teacher doing the thing that the one thing that teachers aren't supposed to do is having a sexual relationship with the student. Um, but I want to say that in, in the case of my teacher, um, I think when that uh, relationship came to light it wasn't even so much the relationship that was a problem it was the realization that there had been um, a misuse of power going on for quite some time and that this you know who knows this I mean in terms of that relationship those two people are still together so you know but it still was a bad thing because at the time that they were involved It was a secret relationship. It was, he was a teacher and she was a student, and they were both married to other people, and he had young kids. So it's like, "Mm, no, that's not not proper. That's not, uh, that's very harmful to those people, and then the impact for everyone else. I mean, I remember one person who had just recently uh, received Jukai from a teacher um, said to me, well, what do I do with my rakasu now? Should I just throw it away? Mm-hmm. You know, the rakasu is a small uh, robe that uh, people receive when they take the precepts in a lay ordination ceremony. And I was, <laughs> you know, to see like how much hurt was there. And I was hurting too, <laughs> and I was also hurting to even hear that. And I, I, I don't think I answered very skillfully, but I just sort of gasped and I said, well, that's Buddha's robe. <laughs> But he doesn't own that. But also, I mean, it's the lineage. So it's the robe that comes to you, and then you have the lineage papers, and there's the name of that teacher who made this transcription. So um, how to reconcile that? Um, so for me, um, I remember one of my um, colleagues who's um, who was also ordained by, um, do me, my ordination teacher, and uh, then went on to be ordained by another teacher, and now is uh, um, is also and transmitted. Uh, that's Mioo sure <laughs> and she told me it's like you need to. It's like there's a um, threads that are tangled and woven together, and some of them are the good things that that Dosho taught and transmitted to, and others are the things that are you know, the power imbalance, the unethical things, the difficult things, the problematic things. And she said, you have to very carefully tease those apart and untangle them that. And um, so, like, just throwing it away, that's not helpful. And also for me, it, I felt like, in a way, it didn't feel impossible. Because I was the only priest left at Clouds and Water um, when he left. Uh, Well, there was another priest, um, but she left after like six months. So then I was was the only one there. Um, And so I just felt, to me, it was like, I guess I did fall back into, this is Buddha's robe. So for me, too, my robe is like, this is Buddha's robe. And yes, it's it's horrible. You know, I felt very shattered. Um, The... Chapter that I wrote for Zen practice in difficult times or challenging times uh, um, um, was called a disillusionment. <laughs> so, and of course, in Zen, disillusionment is a good thing. You don't want to have illusions, but when you're when it happens, so, it's so, so I really idolized my teacher, and then to like, oh, not only is he a human being. But he's a human being who really fucked up (laughs) so okay um, how do I you know like all right now I I don't want to throw this away because he did show me how important this practice is and what is possible Um, and I remember asking uh, Tenshin Roshi um, who was helpful to us at the time of this the transition and that happened in 2004 um, and I said well, what does it even mean when someone who has Dharma transmission can do something like this mm-hmm. you know and and then what does it mean that I idolize this person how can I even work with another teacher in the future it's like if I might do this like that doesn't seem healthy and what should I do about it and and he said something like well you're idolization of that teacher, or of anyone, is your recognition of what is possible. And I thought that was helpful, because it's like instead of saying, I was bad because I idolized this person, I mean, he was bad too, but then I was also bad. I really messed up by mm-hmm. idolizing him. And and in a way, it, was, it did mess things up, because that idolization by me and others is what yeah. enabled him to do continue power abuse for a long time so I was worried about that but to, to understand that this um, this sense of um, uplifting someone could be like me or anyone realizing you know, it, actually it, it, it is possible for someone to um, it is possible for there to be a Buddha <laughs> um, so there's that, but now I feel like even, you know, what, whenever I have that, it's tempered with, yes, it's possible, and I want to look with really eyes wide open to see what is this person actually doing, so I can have that kind of um, sense of like, oh, this is great, like reading about Dick not on oh, he's wonderful, and then reading, someone wrote something about a story like, he was so angry with me, and that he did this, and I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, it's okay. That's kind of a long, yeah. you know, maybe, a little, not, maybe not, maybe long, long and not long enough.
0: But. <laughs> in that vein, though, do you feel like it um, influenced the type of teacher you became and the way that you hold your position and the way that you relate to students? Um, yeah, definitely. So
1: one thing that I really value is at Clubs and Water, where we have a teacher reel. So even though I'm in the, the high seat as the guiding teacher that I'm not the only one and I'm not the only transmitted teacher the fully authorized teacher that's here. Um, and I feel like it is so important for me to check out like you know and have people to be able to say hey when you said that that was kind of off or here's what we are for me to say hey I have this idea, what do you think. Um, and that we're doing it together as a, as a group of teachers. And then I also feel like in terms of sangha that we have that too. You know, we're getting input from people, not just kind of going along what we think is best and being sort of paternalistic.
0: I was saying, I kept saying during the rehearsal, because we had an ordination ceremony yesterday and the rehearsals for those are kind of long. And I've never been to a more relaxing Ceremony mm-hmm. rehearsal <laughs> <laughs> it's a testament to your attitude. <laughs> I've seen teachers like look like they wanted to arm each other during <laughs> 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 <Jukai laughs> rehearsals and stuff. Um, so I don't want to right. take up a ton yeah. of time because maybe we behind? have time for questions. And um, but I would just one, I wanted to ask one closing thing for me, which is like, uh, what were what were your favorite memories? I mean, not that like you know your time oh, from from your life of oh yeah. like were there moments when you're we like oh we did this ceremony or something like that and that was beautiful or something like that. I always like these kinds mm-hmm. of crystallizing moments where it just felt like it's like this is the greatest life I could live.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if there's anything that you feel like you would have liked to have experience in that, and that that you would have that you would want to create. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, last night was pretty great. <laughs> I have to say that's probably a top moment, um, not only because it was the first time that I had ordained three people at once, but also that I um, these three people <laughs> I feel very um, inspired by. Um, so, Shosoku um, and Kato and then the. And that a few years ago, I can't remember, maybe like four or five years ago, I had realized um, that it was a problem that uh, there were not many uh, um, teachers of color. Actually, no, like fully authorized teachers of color at Clouds and Water. And so I made it a, a vow that I want to ordain bipoc, at least one bipoc student is a priest and now there are two which is wonderful not just because you're by because of who you are and yet also this um this I think is really helpful for the for the sangha um so that in a way, you know that that was one vow the other vow was to ordain a young person and um kind of youngish,
2: than me. <laughs> so I still have that intention I'll put
1: out there. Maybe the next intention would be to say, someone under 40, <laughs> at least. <laughs> there. Um. Yeah, I think the probably the highlights are the ordination ceremonies and the jikai ceremonies. I mean, I think about like my, Chusso ceremony, the mountain seat—that's that, when we're nice. But um, but it feels like the generative part of like you know bringing it forward in that way with the jikai, which is the lay ordination or the priest ordination, and then it's like seeing you know how that can go forward. And also you know as I'm. Um, getting older and, and really looking at, I want to I want to teach now in a way that's in, that's rising up the next generation of leaders. And a lot of times I see um, teachers who are like my generation or a little bit older, kind of have this idea like, well, I'm the only one who can do it. And I don't see them like uh, sort of maybe they or maybe they're ordaining people, but they're not giving them leadership authority. And so then um, what's going to happen you know, so I'm really interested in shifting that that um, that narrative to say like my job isn't actually when when one of the things when uh, in the Dharma transmission ceremony is a pledge to that you would transmit continue to transmit the Dharma to the next generation and so I'm looking at that especially
2: how wonderful you also, the we have some time for, for
0: for to open that up. If anyone has any
1: questions or sources, yes,
2: yeah. um, for, for everybody's say
1: could you say a little bit more about um, ordination, transmission, transmission, ordination? Yes, Just because I think yes, that's, that's exactly yes. So priest ordination in our transmission in our tradition, priest ordination or lay teacher in training. Uh, we call that ordination, Kathleen. I can't remember. I It's not an ordination, but it is a it is a recognition of someone stepping into the path of a lay teacher in training, with me, which Kathleen had done. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, when someone steps, you know, puts on the robes of a priest, it's considered that now they're training to be a priest. So it's like. A little different than some other places where I mean, obviously they've already done some training, but um, but the you know then it's like okay now now the like really heavy training <laughs> starts because you're you're teaching yourself how to wear the robes, how to conduct yourself as a priest, um, and then there's Shusso, which I mentioned, and that's where the more the community is starting to recognize that person as a leader, and that's represented by a ceremony in which the community asks questions of the shiso candidate and then they have to answer with a big stick. <laughs> um, and then dharma transmission is when the person's teacher says, I believe you, you're done with your formal training. So we're never done with training. That's my view is that I want to keep training forever. Um, because there's always more I can be learning about myself and how I conduct myself and how I can best teach. Um, but dharma transmission re- represents the teacher saying your formal training is done, and then that person then has permission to teach, so-called independently. are never yeah, independent, but they could go off and start their own Zen center. Um, they can then ordain people. So it's it's that formal training.
2: So thanks for that. I hope that's helpful to clarify. Yes. Firstly, thank you. It's such a joy to hear more yeah. about, about you and your reflections on this path right after after Shouzou and I stepped onto it <laughs> last night. But I wanted to say, I really appreciated that conversation about um, you know, uh, you know, being, being uh, these vows rather than maybe showing them, or and and I was thinking about a, a teaching story that a, a person of color friend of of mine um, often tells when they come into my racial equity trainings to tell to tell stories. Um, by being too quiet. Oh, no. okay,
1: I just thought people might want to see you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he tells a story of being in Northern Minnesota as a person of color and an avid fisherman, so, and making, it was just a tough combo, and making friends with a very old man who ran a bait shop, and um, hoping that they were becoming friends, and one day my friend, the, the person of color, was leaving. Uh, the bait shop um, and had forgotten his keys on the counter but the the owner didn't know and another person walked in and and they thought my friend had left and the person who walked in uh, said a racial slur Mm. about my friend being a fisherman you know Mm. like oh now they're fishing Um, Mm. and the owner of the shop said I will not tolerate that language here. And my friend heard it because he had gone back in to get his keys and no one knew he was there. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. this moment where he was like, this is my friend and ally, mm-hmm. even when I'm not looking. Mm-hmm. And it's that mm-hmm. kind of like, yeah. even when I'm not looking, you know, so I think yeah. about it a lot. Like, yeah. who am I when no one's looking? Yeah. You know, like, right. Can I, can I? Yes, I will to my vows, even when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. And I always think about toilet paper rolls. Like they're they're the bane of my existence. I hate when they're empty. <laughs> and like somebody used the last piece and then left empty toilet paper roll on the thing. Um, which, when you know, it's not, you know. But living in community, it would happen a lot. And I would just say, Okay, yes I will, you know, no one's looking. I don't get to have this like self-righteous. <laughs> <laughs> like, look, look at me
1: putting the toilet.
2: <laughs> but I do it, you know, I feel it at first I'm like grumbly and upset about it, and then I'm like, Okay. I took the bow. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for <laughs> bringing that. <up. laughs>
1: Yes. Um, yeah, I wondered if you could um, address uh, how your other work you did, uh, not being a priest, but I think in um, therapy maybe, mm-hmm.
2: how that intertwined or was different or mm-hmm. were they separate or it couldn't be completely separate, yeah. but how you right. yeah, worked with that. Yeah.
1: So I never actually worked as a therapist, but I did work for 10 years in community mental health. So what that looked like was. Um, Uh, I worked in a couple programs that were kind of helping people get um, on their feet after they had been like in a um, state institution um, or had been hospitalized, you know, at a local facility uh, for, uh, but mostly people who had been, you know, like had serious problems and were, you know, in a sort of residential Um, treatment facility and then needing to return to the community. So what I was doing is meeting with them and we had various different programs, you know, set up to help people kind of get back, um, or get in, you know, be able to live uh, within the community. and then I also worked for five years I was a director of a community mental health center where it was a drop in center. And then we also connected with people to help, you know, help make sure they could get connected with the right people they needed to to get services, uh, whether that was a social worker or um, uh, financial help or whatever that was. Um, so just I think. Um, and I was just starting to practice um, when I was working at that, at that one, at the community mental health um, and practice Zen Buddhism, that is. And so I really see a, a similarity in the fact of just being present to people as they are, not trying to change them, but then helping them to find their own way in the world. And so these were people with some real serious problems. But you know, in a way, we all have we all have different things that are going on that are that are hard, and we all have trauma uh, in one way or another. So, um, so I feel like it was um, it was helpful for me to be working with people who are you know maybe at the most you know sort of critical point in their life, and then uh, and then you know the rest is easy you know. But but that job was really hard. Um, and uh, I think it's something that um, I don't know how people do it for long term because it reached a point where I would, when I woke up in the morning and then realized it was a work day and started crying, it was like, okay, I need, to, <laughs> I need to find another job <laughs> at this point because um, it was pretty intense.
2: Okay, thank you. Thank you.